This time last year, I was um, backwards and forwards a lot between um, Dover and Calais. Uh, maybe say a little bit more about that a bit later on. But on one particular day, I had an interesting encounter with the Kent police. Um, some of you will know that the UK border is in Calais rather than in Dover, uh, which complicates the situation considerably. It did when the, uh, the jungle camp was still in existence in Calais. And um, I went through the Calais port an awful lot. As some of you know, I was involved in project leading a, um, a, a project <laughs> uh, in Calais at that time. And uh, I, got, I got pulled over by, um, I knew the guy was, was a cop um, in a high-vis jacket kind of thing, and he, he asked me the sort of usual questions, where are you going? I said, I'm going on to the Calais jungle, and he said, have you been there before? I said, yes, many times. Uh, and he said, would you have a conversation with me? And I'm thinking, well, I think I'm having a conversation with you already. Um, but I got out of the car and went into this porter cabin, and then I'm nervous. I'm nervous at this point. And he started to ask me an awful lot of questions, and then he said, look, would you speak to me off the record? And I think, well, okay, I've, was I taped before? Or, and uh, he said, look, you know, we don't know what's going on there. Nobody talks to us. Uh, the British police are not allowed in there because it's a French uh, uh, police operation. And uh, through that situation, I learned that the Kent police had a lot of misinformation about what was happening inside the camp. And the conversation ended with him taking my mobile number, and then for the next six months, I became an informer for Kent police, (laughs) as well as doing what I was doing in Calais. I don't know whether you've noticed, like I have, that we are currently surrounded by a great deal of questionable facts, Biased information, distorted truth, and at times, barefaced lies. Uh, I think we are yet to see what is going to happen over this next year to 18 months in the light of the incredible political turbulence that took place in 2016. And as America uh, swaps its first black president for its first orange president, we (laughs) are yet to see what the implications of that will be also upon the whole world. But the greatest and most powerful lie that is perpetrated around our broken society today is that God has forgotten us. Uh, It was Ricky Gervais who said that God is like a builder with another job on. He started it and then he's cleared off. I think it is a fair observation for Many people who look on at the church and they try to get to grips with this thing we call Christianity and how it fits into a very broken and very challenging society that we find ourselves in. Well, I'm here to tell you today that God is in full control of this world, that he's not caught off guard and far from God abandoning abandoning us, the reality is that we have abandoned him. That is the reality. The Bible shows us that God watches us. It says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. God is watching us. He also waits for us. He has not forgotten you for one moment. And you can connect with him in a powerful way today if you choose to do that. We're also talking today over this weekend about this thing we call Alpha. Well, we don't call it Alpha. It's called Alpha. 
And uh, that little pop-up banner over there, you'll see if you're interested in finding out more about the Alpha course, it's a fantastic opportunity to go on a journey with us over a few weeks, a couple of months actually, on a Tuesday evening where we look at the real central issues of uh, uh, Christianity. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus die? How do you pray? What about the Bible? Those kinds of questions. And if you're here for the first time today, firstly, you are extremely welcome to the Middlebrook Centre and to Hope Church Winchester. We're thrilled that you're here. Um, but if you want to go a little bit deeper and kind of wrestle with us about some of these challenging issues around the Christian faith, then Alpha is to, for you. And uh, I'll be over there at the end and some of the team will be. And we'd love to introduce you to the Alpha course that starts in a couple of weeks' time. There's people here in the church today that have been through Alpha, many of them actually, and uh, people that have actually found faith in Jesus through that journey. It's not a hard sell. Uh, We're not going to take this book and sort of work it down your throat uh, so you believe it. That's not the idea at all. Um, A lot of people make the mistake of using the Bible as a weapon in order to correct people. That's not what it's for. The Bible is a love story. It's an epic encounter. Uh, epic love story of the encounters between God and humanity. And that's the basis that we're going to be uh, uh, framing the Alpha Course around for those two months. I get a lot of questions in the kind of work that I do, and um, probably this is the most frequent question. If God is love, then why do people suffer? It's a perfectly reasonable question to angle at the church and to inquire of Christians and Christianity. It's not a theoretical, philosophical inquiry like the one about monkeys and fossils and dinosaurs, but rather it's a, it's a heart cry of millions of people for some kind of answer that explains the pain of the bereaved, the poverty-stricken, the sick, and the rejected. It's a real question, and I'm always very careful with this question. I, in some ways, I am used to answering it. I'm used to it being asked of me, but I'm very careful with it. And I remember a time when um, I was... Um, speaking about this particular subject, about suffering, and, um, and I knew that the, the lady who asked me the question, I just had a, a sense, you know... Um, Christians use this word discernment, it's a spiritual gift in the Bible, and I, some people call it a sort of a hunch or a sixth sense, but whatever you may call it, I knew that the question was being asked, not as a philosophical question, an interesting thing to talk about, but I knew that it reflected real pain in that person's life, and so I sort of sidestepped the question, because I didn't want to say something that was just rehearsed or some clever little one-liner to explain away the pain in this person's life. And, and after I finished that particular gathering, um, somebody came up to me with an open Bible, and I thought, here comes trouble. And uh, this person proceeded to read to me a number of scriptures in the Bible, all of which I knew and most of which I could recite, as to what I should have said in response to the question, how does a God of love allow people to suffer? And as I said, you see, this... This book is not a weapon. This book is not something that we use to explain away the pain that people feel. But it is an incredible tool to illuminate the heart and the love and the intention of God towards ordinary broken people. 
So rather than stand here today and reel off a few kind of hot one-liners and a shallow response to that question, let's see what Jesus had to say about it. Let's see how he engaged with real pain, real struggle, real suffering. The last three times that I've stood up here, I was looking through my notes. I keep quite a detailed record, a database, because I do a lot of this, as a lot of you, or some of you do as well. And I, I, I have to make sure that I'm not kind of repeating myself too much. Um, although having said that, when um, the very famous evangelist Billy Graham was preaching in Madison Square Garden in 1966 in New York, um, a guy came out and he said, I've been here 26 nights and I've only heard one message. And uh, he meant it as an insult, and Billy Graham took it as a compliment, uh, because I think really evangelists do only have one message. And I was looking at the last three times that I've been up here, and I've realized that it's a sort of a mini-series, actually. It's uh, all the stories that I've talked about appear sequentially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. I talked about the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus treated um, a whole crowd to a free lunch on the side of a mountain. I then talked about the storm on the lake where this spiritual demonic storm attacks Jesus and the, the thing around that. And then the healing of a madman on the other side of the lake. And this is what happens next in all three of those Gospels. What's quite interesting is that the miracles and the encounters around Jesus do often appear in two, three, or in one or two situations, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four authors all recording what they see from a slightly different angle, I guess because of personality and profession and temperament, but also to a slightly different audience as well. And this is what happens. This is what the story that is recorded in all three of the Gospels, and we're going to look at all three of them, just not not completely, uh, but we're going to dip into all three of them as we go through in the next few minutes. Just like any community, the people gathering around Jesus have all kinds of issues. And as this three-year Jesus drama unfolds, we're going to look particularly at what happens on one occasion when a crowd is gathering around Jesus with all kinds of needs and all kinds of hang-ups and all kinds of bigotry and all kinds of perspective. And into that situation, the miraculous ministry of Jesus detonates. This is what happens. This is in Matthew's gospel in chapter 9. A woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I can touch his cloak, I will be healed. People were drawn to the presence of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and they still are. This building is being visited by all kinds of different people at different times throughout the week. The ark that happens on a Friday morning is drawing upwards of 200 people into this building. Many of them have got questions. A lot of them have got pain. All kinds of situations are coming to the surface. People are coming because they have a desire to connect, of course, socially, 
But there's all sorts of conversations that are going on here as well. I want to say that the ark is a fabulous thing that is going on here. And if you have time and if you have the inclination, I know that they really need help right now. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a parent and, parent and carers and uh, a young children's event that happens here. And uh, we're trying to find overlap all the time between the Alpha course and uh, the ark. But if you have time, please get involved in that. A Syrian guy walked up to me on the Calais jungle about January of last year, and uh, he asked me if we were Jesus people. Um, I don't know how he knew that, but I told him that we were. I had lots of conversations with people about Jesus, about the Bible, about the church while we were involved in Calais. Sometimes the actions of Jesus were very high profile. But here is a moment where it is very individual and actually deeply personal. I guess that's how it is with our lives. There's a, there's a bit that everybody sees. There's a public bit. You could pick somebody out in the room here and we would all say what we know about that person. There's something that is known. There's details and facts and history and their family and maybe their profession, the kind of way in which they talk, the way that they handle themselves in groups. But there's always a part which is unseen and private, the inner world, the part of us that nobody gets to look at unless we volunteer the information. While we were in Calais, we were surrounded by thousands of people in desperate, desperate need, truly horrendous. I've never seen suffering like it. But what I noticed as I walked the, the jungle camp many times, which I did, often taking people round and obviously involved in what we were doing, which was essentially humanitarian, but we had lots of opportunities to talk about why we were there, to introduce people to Jesus and to support kind of churches that were growing up uh, inside the camp. But one of the things that I noticed a lot was that there were so many people and there were so many stories going on at the same time. There was someone that was sick, there was someone that was, um, you know, trying to fill out an asylum application, there might be a fight, there might be a food queue, there might be a van arriving from some voluntary organisation, mainly in the UK or Holland, emptying its, its contents of clothes and people grabbing hold of what they could get. There was so much going on. And in this count that I'm just looking at today, there's a lot going on. There's actually a second tragedy that is unfolding at the same time as this particular Jesus encounter is taking place. And it appears to be the sort of bookends of this story. It's there at the beginning and it's there at the end. Essentially what is happening is this. The leader of the synagogue, which is the Jewish religious building that is the center of the community, the leader, the boss, the guy who's in charge, he breaks protocol and goes out onto the street in order to confront Jesus while he is involved in this meeting that we know is taking place. 
The context to it is that his child, his young daughter, is desperately ill and at the point of death. There's nothing like a personal tragedy that causes somebody in a moment to forget their status, to forget their reputation, and to forget the implications of going public with a personal detail about their family life. But for some reason, the sick woman on the street takes precedence over the sick child in the house. I wonder why. I wonder why. So let's pick up the story again and we'll see what happens as a result of this woman literally grabbing hold of Jesus on the street. He turned around in the crowd, this is Jesus again obviously, and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? Okay, so that's in Mark. Remember what I said? It's actually it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So let's see what the other gospel writers said about this moment, how they describe this chaotic scene that is not really an organized religious meeting. It's a free-for-all. It's a, it, it, it's a, a, a massive group of people that are just trying to get to the epicenter of what is happening. They're trying to get to the person who's in the center of it, which is Jesus. Mark says, a large crowd pressed around him. Luke says, the crowds almost crushed him. And into that chaotic moment, into that scene of a mass group of people moving together, Jesus asks his disciples the question, who touched me? And they're staggered by the question. Who, who touched you? Jesus, who touched you? Everybody touched you. What an insane question to ask when the crowds are so big that they are almost crushing the life out of Jesus. Who touched me? Earlier in the timeline, Matthew paints an amazing picture for us of what it was like to be around Jesus. This is not the same incident he's talking about, but the earlier one. And this is what it says in Matthew 14. People brought all who were sick to him and begged him to let them touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's not a series of seminars that Jesus is engaging in. He's not giving talks. He told stories, we know that. And he used the stuff that he saw around him to illustrate the messages that he was delivering. He talked about the land and he talked about agriculture. He talked about things that physically people could identify with and see. He talked about seeds and plants and trees so it wasn't that he didn't speak but he didn't teach in the way that a lot of people assume teaching is done today where one person 
persuade somebody else or a group that their truth is greater than the crowd's truth. That really wasn't the way Jesus communicated. He hid the truth. He actually caused people to have to dig and to search. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That's what he said. So there was something quite subversive about it. It was something quite off-piste about the way Jesus engaged. But when it came to the miracles, when it came to the power encounters, everybody saw what was going on. It was hard to miss what Jesus was up to when he was doing those things. That's why the people came out onto the street to watch him. And as we fast forward back uh, fast forward back, fast forward on into the book of Acts, we see the baton having been passed to the disciples, and now Jesus has died on a cross. He's been raised powerfully from the dead by the Father, and now he is ascended to heaven. And it's breaking out once again on the street. And in Acts 5, this is what we read. People brought their sick out onto the street so that at least Peter's shadow might touch them. Why would you bring your sick out into the street? Well, I guess there is some sort of assumption that that's where the church was going to be. Maybe there's people that are so desperate and they know that they need the church and they assume that the church meets on the street. Now, it meets in buildings and we invite people to come to listen to our speakers. But there was something about what happened in Acts, in the book of Acts, that was very public, very accessible. People being healed just by touching Jesus' clothes, and now it's a mere shadow that is releasing this strange power that changes lives. You see, God is not contained in programs and buildings and special places. God doesn't live by our rules. He refuses to be contained by the box. He doesn't just live in the traditions that people like to talk about over a flat white in Starbucks. He's not domesticated. He's not tameable. And so there's something going on here on the street, both in the days of Jesus and now, Very shortly afterwards, in the life of the early church, the first church on the streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, something uncontainable. It's not out of control. There's a divine order, but it's very powerful what's taking place, and people are encountering the power of God. These are not special outreach meetings for a week in July This is 24-7-365, street church, Jesus style. 30 years ago when I started the work of Miracle Street, it wasn't because I wanted to run street work or street meetings or street evangelism. It's because I had an inner conviction 
that the church has got to be accessible to the forgotten. And for those of you who visit today, just um, if I can just take an aside for a moment. Uh, for a lot of years, you know, we had this term, and we still have it in some ways, and the term is friendship evangelism. And what that means is Christians encouraged to make friends with others, which is obviously fantastic and very important, in order to share the truth, the reality of what Jesus has done for them. That's a fantastic thing. But the problem is, is that how do you reach people that have no friends and no network? So something about this message has got to be totally accessible to those who would not go near a church if their life depended on it. And in some ways, why should they? Something about the way Jesus operated that has now been inherited by the early disciples, the apostles, the leaders of the church has got that mark upon it. So let's look behind the scenes a little bit at this story. This anonymous woman in the crowd has been carrying a socially challenging condition for 12 years. Shunned by the community as unclean, because that's the way that the system worked, and shamed into thinking that anyone who touched her would get what she has got and would also be unclean. So the entrapment around this woman's life is profound. She's probably got no friends, she's got no community, and she is living with this condition, and it appears that there is no end to it. So why now? Why, after 12 years, is she out on the street pushing through the crowds in order to grab hold of Jesus? Well, here's the answer. Matthew 5 and verse 26. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she got worse. So she's flat broke as well. So she's got the condition, she's got the social implications of the condition, she's living a private turmoil internally, and she's broke as well. She's broke because she's seen every quack that was available. She's been to all the clinics that she could afford. She doesn't got Bupa. She doesn't qualify for NHS free prescriptions or Obamacare. So she's out on the street because she's at the end of the line. She's tried everything. And nothing seems to have worked. And her bank account has been emptied in the process. But here's where our journey of embarrassment ends. Not in another clinic with a doctor, but out on the street with the Messiah. Let's pick up the story, this time in Matthew again. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, he said. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. So it wasn't about Jesus at all. It was about her. Your faith has healed you. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
and the woman was healed at that moment. Twelve years. Twelve years of turmoil. She spent all her money. She's been to all the doctors, all the clinics. She's lost all her friends. She's been ostracized by her community. Twelve years. And she goes out on the street. She grabs a guy's coat. And he says, your faith has made you well. Your faith. That's interesting. Isn't it? Clearly, she needed Jesus, but she also needed faith in Jesus. See, they're the two ingredients that seem to be present in this moment. Jesus is in the middle of it, which is very important. (laughs) But her ability to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God. I'm starting to hear the noise on the street and I think you are who you claim to be. And you see, what happens through the Alpha journey is that people come in with questions, totally valid questions, certain amount of anxiety and trepidation probably. <laughs> Listen to some big bull bloke for seven weeks is a, a challenge in itself, I guess. That's me, by the way. But what often happens, and people have testified to this, is that there is a a sort of a transition that goes on. And it's different for each person, of course. Some people have got a background in the church. Uh, Some of it's not been great, but it, it is a background. Some people have no background whatsoever. Some people from a very professional background. Other people from a very struggling background. There's even people like Aaron, who's like me. (laughs) He's me and him, just the same. Football and a few other things. So it's all kinds of people come into an Alpha course. And through that process, something happens. You get to hear about Jesus, and then you start to have faith in Jesus, that he can deal with your pain and your situation and the connection starts to get made. There's a guy called Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, who was um, embroiled in the Watergate scandal in the 70s in America, who ended up in prison for what he did. You know, Richard Nixon, the whole Watergate thing, which was a terrible, you know, stain on American political history. And he ends up in prison and in prison he becomes a Christian. And he comes out of prison and he did some cool stuff as a result of what happened to him inside prison. But he made a statement and it was this. He said, I have learned that the process of becoming a Christian happens in a moment, but the process of transitioning from sinfulness into new life is a long and arduous one. So there is a moment, there is a decision when you pass from one place to another. It is a moment that happens. That we reach out to God in faith and he saves us through the power of the resurrected Jesus' son. It's a moment. It's powerful. But then there is a process and it takes a lifetime where we are being daily transformed more into the image of Jesus. 
becoming more like the people that we were created by God, the work of his hands to be. And that's what Colson was talking about. That's what he was starting to help us to understand. So this lady, she needed the moment. She needed the encounter. But I guess her life was transformed in a way that was very, very powerful after that. But we don't get to hear much about the story or anything about the story. And that is so often the case. When I get to heaven, I'm going to read the books. I'm going to meet the people. I'm going to ask what the stories were really about. This guy that the Bible calls Legion, I talked about it last time. This mad guy. You know, he's a first century self-harmer living in the cemetery. Scary guy. And he's terrorizing a whole district. And we see what happens when he encounters Jesus... And he puts his faith in Jesus and he gets set free. And then he begs to join the team and Jesus says, no, you're not joining this team. Start your own team. And he then goes out into the area that he terrorized. And we don't get to hear anything else. What happened? Bet that's a good book. His life story. So she needs Jesus, but she needs a faith in Jesus, and that's what makes it all connect. His power, our response. We're not Christians because we are born in a certain country. We're not Christians because our parents are Christians. You can't pass it on like the family silver. God doesn't have grandchildren. He has only children. So we have to make a response. We don't just get it. It doesn't just land on us. There has to be a response. And some of you here today are probably right at the edge of that moment of response. You listen to me and you're thinking, yeah, I I get it. I get it. It makes sense. Well, it makes sense because it's true. That's why it makes sense. But you've never quite taken that step. His power, our response. Our faith in Jesus means that we have to take action. We have to take a step. And in a minute, I'm going to invite you to take a step, a physical step, and come and stand down the front here. And other people would as well, I'm sure. As we literally step into this message, we don't sort of go, yeah, all right, I believe it. Where do I sign? No. You step into the story. You become an actor in this great drama. And you commit to a lifelong journey of transformation by the work of God through his Holy Spirit. And it is amazing. It is amazing. I couldn't begin to tell you the stories that are in this room. Stories of freedom and healing. Stories of the power coming into people's lives and making a massive difference in their family situation. There's some tragedy here as well. But that's all part of the human condition as we know. By the way, at the end of the story, Jesus pops up at the synagogue leader's house, apologizes for the slight delay, and raises his daughter from the dead, all in a day's work, it would seem. See, Jesus didn't forget that girl. She died in the process. 
And sometimes we can live in that moment, can't we, where we can say, I cried out to God, but nothing happened. He went away and he dealt with someone else. Ricky Gervais. God's like a builder with another job on. That's what that guy must have felt like, the synagogue leader. Well, thanks a lot, Jesus. Cheers, nice one. I do what I don't do. I go out onto the street. I approach you. I tell you my family situation in front of everybody. You say you're going to come. Thanks for popping in. Nice one. Because Jesus is diverted. It's there. Read it. He says, oh yeah, come, I'll come to your house. And on the way, he encounters this woman. And he deals with that situation, but then he goes back and deals with the other situation. But in the meantime, chaos has broken out in that house. And sometimes we've just got to realize that we're in a linear process. Sometimes on a day, in a moment, it can feel a little bit crazy. We can feel like God's just sort of abandoned us. Well, I tried that. It didn't work. Well, maybe there's a longer story. Maybe there's a bigger picture that we need to be aware of. Like that lady, you, you may feel nervous around Jesus. You may be wondering whether you're going to be met with acceptance or rejection. Maybe you've had a bad experience of the church in the past. It happens. We get it wrong. We're all human. We're all flawed. We're all broken. I know I am. But when we come to Christ, something beautiful happens. Something transformational. And Alpha is a great way to find Jesus, but it requires something from you. You've got to push through the crowd. You've got to push through. And right now, you may be in a moment where you've got to push through. Because you may be as close as you're ever going to get without crossing the line. And it's time to cross the line. It's not time to say, ah, great, I know all the answers. Well, come and out me if you know all the answers. Because I've been in this 30 years, full time for 30 years, 32 years since since I've been a Christian. I mean, the more I go on, the less I know. So if you've got all the answers, you know, we could really do with your help in this church. Because... The leaders don't know. So it's not about having the boxes ticked. It's about that inner conviction. It's about the tug on the heartstrings, which we all know what that feels like because it's God. It's the way God speaks. He doesn't crash through the French windows of our conservatory and drag us screaming into the place where he wants us to be. It's not like that. But it requires a response. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. The new creation has come. And out of that creation, a new life grows. But it starts with a step. I wonder if we could all stand for a moment. Okay, I'm going to help some of you cross the line today. And uh, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you by the hand, if you like. And I'm going to help you get over the line, because I 
meet lots of people who sort of say, yeah, I've, I know it's true, and I've known it's true for a long time, and I'm going, how long? How much time you got? Don't waste any time. Dive in, both feet. Get stuck in to what God has got for you, because you can only really experience it on the other side. You can think about it. You can think, oh, yeah, it would be great. Well, get hold of it. <laughs> Come and grab it. So I'm going to pray. And I encourage you to pray. And in fact, I'm going to ask all of us to pray out loud together. So it's, it's all of us doing that, okay? And at the end of that, I'm going to ask you to sound really brave. I'm going to ask you to push through the crowd like that lady did. It's not, it's not that brave. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not Aleppo. So, <laughs> you know, you're in a safe place here, okay? But I'm going to ask you to come and stand here if that's you. And there is a number of people I think that applies to. So let's all pray. Let's pray out loud. Pray after me. My Father in heaven, thank you that you love me so much, that you sent your Son Jesus to live a life and to die a death, to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven on earth, and then to rise from the dead, destroying death. In order that I could know God for an eternity and a story can be written in my life as a friend of God that my life would reflect your power and your love to everyone I meet. Live in me now by the power of your Holy Spirit. Okay, if I'm, you don't have to say okay. <laughs> so if you know that's for you, I want you to be really brave and I want you to walk out from where you are and come and stand with me. Do it now. Anyone else want to be as brave as these two? It's a big moment. When we take a step, it's a big moment. Who else wants to join this little crowd that's growing down here? Maybe some of you have been Christians before and you think, you know what, I've just, I lost it. I lost the plot. It, somehow it drained out of me and I don't know where it went, but I need it back. So you need to be down here as well.